This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, is much better with a bona fide professor in the room. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is, no, not Dr. Nirban Mahanti. He's still away, but someone else. Before that, though, I do want to acknowledge, and we should say, many people are doing it tough in the shadow and some cases, unfortunately, in the ruins of the fires that are currently across Australia. Um, this is a business podcast, so we'll get on with that in a minute. But we just wanted to acknowledge those fires, to thank our fires and the emergency services and, and Defence Force personnel. Um, I'm not one really for the old thoughts and prayers thing, but um, we do want you to know that if you're going through a tough time, we hope that things get better quickly. We're thinking of you and uh, maybe this podcast and, and others like ours can give you a little bit of light relief along the way and maybe maybe a little bit of education inside as well. So uh, we are thinking of you. We hope things improve pretty quickly. All right. As I said, Doc is on an extended holiday in Canada. He will be back, I promise. But in the meantime, we've been toying with a new occasional series of talking to some of the best and brightest minds in business and finance. And I'm pleased to say our first guest is none other than a very highly regarded man, who until a few years ago was a chief economist at the ANZ and these days is industry professor at the University of Technology in Sydney. I am talking, of course, about Warren Hogan. Welcome, Warren, and thanks for joining Motley Fool Money. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's nice and early in the year to talk about what's ahead. <laughs> exactly. That's a good time to do it. Now, when I invited you on the show, you, you, uh, you sent me an email back and you, I think you said, well, I know you said because I've copied it straight down here. You said, I've had some strong views on why most economists are misreading the economy and what that means for 2020. I also have some views on QE and why it's the devil's playground. I'm thinking this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> yep. Well, I'm uh, happy to uh, extend on those thoughts if you wish. <laughs> we certainly will. Now, mate, I will give a quick rundown. Look, everyone knows who you are. Most people would know your background. But for those who don't, you are the industry professor at UTS Business School based in the Finance Discipline Group. I might ask you about that. You also run your own micro-advisory firm, EQ Economics. You worked at the Federal Treasury in 2016. You were the chief economist at the ANZ for years with a team of, what is it, 50-odd professional economists and analysts. So you had the not only your finger on the pulse, but the people to work out what was actually going on. Mm. You've been at Credit Suisse. You've been at Westpac. You've been at New South Wales Treasury. You know your stuff. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. So let's let's start off at the end of maybe the... Uh, so, you know, you, you say your, your research focus is the global and Aussie macro, political economy, monetary economics, and the financial system. I'm going to start at the end of that one, mate, if we can. You and I actually met in person for the first time on an ABC news desk a few years ago, right in the, uh, as just as the Royal Commission's findings were being handed down, we were on our phones, we were on our computers trying to work out what exactly Kenneth Hayne had said. So I guess I want to know now, with the benefit of a little bit more hindsight, how did Commissioner Hayne do and how would you characterise your government's response to the Royal Commission? Good memory, Scott. Um, <laughs> I've got it written down, mate. ABC. Um, <laughs> So, look, I think um, we're now get a, getting a very clear picture of what Hain was getting at. So if you remember when the, the final report was brought down, a lot of people in the media and the community thought, oh, God, well, the bankers <laughs> have got away with it again. And the share <laughs> I was price, one of them, I'd have to say. Well, and the share price rallied and all that. But, you know, as I was saying at the time, the whole point of what Hain was getting at is banking's about character. Uh -huh. It's about doing the right thing. So there's two mechanisms there. One is that you've got to hire the right people, the right characters yeah. into senior management. And if you... Uh, get that wrong, uh, then you know <laughs> yes. your, your leadership of the bank's got to take responsibility. I.e. Right. CEO and the board. So, right. I mean, reading that, it's amazing we've got any CEOs left. Yeah. Uh, we've lost. Well, actually, we've lost three of the four. Lost most of them now. exactly. Uh, we've got yeah. probably one to go. But yeah. um, the other implication is if people 
within financial institutions do wrong, mm. the full weight of the law has to come down on them. Now, that's not about regulating banks and mm. stifling mm. their activity even mm. more. And I think because Hain took that approach and necessarily that approach means it's going to take time to change this thing because yeah. you've got to, you know, ASIC and APRA have all got to launch proceedings and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no sort of silver bullet on the spot. Now, they've scared the, the, the bejesus out of the bankers. Well, that's right. That's is, what's now happened. Is this a lasting change, though? I mean, are we back in 10 years' time with the next generation of bankers who didn't grow up through this making the same sorts of mistakes? Is there, is there enough change at a, at, at, a, at a regulatory level, a legislative level? Uh, frankly, you know, are there enough penalties now in place? Will this happen again, or are we in the clear for a while? Well, so, first of all, we're only at the start of the, the, the regulatory legal proceedings. Right. Uh, this is all just playing out. There'll be more to come. And of course, the actual legal cases will take many years to play out. So yeah. this whole process of responding to what's happened already mm-hmm. is going to take years. Okay. Um, look, in terms of will it work, the Australian <laughs> bankers who are uh, senior bankers and mid-level bankers who went through the uh, financial crisis in Australia in the early 90s, <laughs> and that was a financial crisis. We almost lost Westpac. ANZ wasn't far behind. Mm. Um, and we had a, our own great recession. Mm. Um, you know, that impacted Australian banking for almost 20 years. And okay. it was only when that generation of bankers started to retire. Mm. And then importantly, I think also the board members of banks were not sort of acutely aware of all that environment mm-hmm. that you started to see these kind of people come into Australian banking and these new behaviours, bad behaviours that we've seen come into play where you've got a lot of consultants in there, you've got people from outside the commercial banking system, investment bankers in key roles, and the short-term profit motive became paramount mm. at the expense of the long-term interests of the banks and, of course, the community. So, look, it did work. Yeah. It's just that the trick is making it work through generations. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that's part of the reason we see cycles out there. And that's been – like so my take – this is not about me, it's about you, but my take was that until we change the incentives that drive – or the culture that drive the incentives or the incentives that drive the culture, whichever way you want to put that around – your point about the short-term thing, no banker gets, well, very few bankers get bonuses based on five or 10-year results. Yep. It's all this year's results. Yeah, there's some cu- squishy customer service measures and stuff like that. But fundamentally, if you know your CEO for one, two, three, five years, is there enough in the inbuilt inherently in the culture, the incentives, whatever that is, to make sure these things stick? Or is there still another layer? I, I would argue that changing the incentives, until you change the incentives, I don't think we'll have enough else change. But is that too cynical? Yeah, look, no and yes. Um, <laughs> in terms of general senior... You're an economist, right? Is he <laughs> on one hand, no, on the other hand, yes? Is that what you're no, telling no, me? No, this is just a no and a yes. <laughs> um, All right. No, no. In terms of generally senior bankers, we probably need to not overplay the incentive thing too much. Okay. I mean, sure, the level of pay is ridiculous and it is coming down. Mm. Um but you need to incentivize people in all, all businesses, right? So I don't think we should you know, be cutting out bonuses and all that sort of thing. You know, in, in commercial banking where it's essentially a franchise, sure, you don't want to have a heavy bonus culture, but, you know, let's, that's not the problem. Yeah. Um, it's, it, well, it's a problem I think that's being dealt with. Right. At the CEO board level or even the management team, top seven to ten people in the firm and board level, mm. that's where it's got to change. Okay. If you're taking the role of CEO of a bank for the money, then you are doing it for the wrong reasons. You should already be wealthy, you know? <laughs> well, by the time you get there, you, know, you almost certainly are, right? You are. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. the, the pay premium between the top seven people in the bank and the CEO has gone too much. It should, right. it should be the right character yeah. that gets that role. And this is the point. The real thing is it's the CEO, probably the top team around them, and the board mm. that have got to have be guardians of character and the long-term interests of not just the bank, but the community. And that's what got wrong. 
and that's where you know all the stuff about you know crazy bankers and incentives mm-hmm. and bonuses. At the point, at some point, that's an issue. But really, it's these senior people who, for the last two hundred years, have been the ones who take responsibility for a bank for the banks, mm. and they're the ones who have done the right thing when banking has gone well. And of course, they're the ones who have lost their way and lost visibility and control of the organisation when things have gone badly. So you're kind of hopeful we've got a generation at least of of, of better behaviour now as a result of the Royal Commission. Yeah, well, I mean, as Ken Henry said, you can't go sack everyone. Yeah, <laughs> true. Um, you know, Ken Ken actually did one of the, the greatest acts of public service that he's done in his whole career, and he's done a fair bit of it yeah. by by re- resigning. Yeah, you right, know? I mean, right, he, right, he right. wasn't the chairman through most of this, but yeah, you know, yeah. he took responsibility, and that is an act of character. Right. And, of course, that's an act of taking responsibility. I mean, I'm, I'm just aghast that the others didn't or only did it under severe duress. Yeah. The fact that any of those CEOs and, and, and chairmen survived this is incredible to me. But anyway, it's changing slowly, and I can tell you that the way APRA and ASIC are going, they're probably going too far. Okay. Um, you know, we the, the, the policy reaction to anything in any sort of thing <laughs> yeah. is always, you know, they swing it too far. Well, no one gets in trouble for not doing enough, right? You're, well, it's particularly after what happened. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't do enough then. Exactly. You know? exactly. But, you know, the, the regulators probably took a bit too much because of the heat because, you know, in the end, again, it comes down in a civilised society, in our free market system that is still a society mm-hmm. where, you know, the people who are in in privileged positions of leadership should be taking the broad long-term interests of the whole community at heart. Mm. Um, they got it wrong. Nice. Mate, let's move on from that. As I said, when I saw you, that was the end of the Royal Commission. You were at that point, or at least subsequently, and you're now the industry professor at UTS. What? From, I mean, obviously a, a very long and distinguished career thus far and plenty to go, I'm sure, in, in economics. What does an industry professor do at UTS? Uh, it's a professor who doesn't have a PhD. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm not a real academic. Right, um, right, right which uh, for a whole range of reasons is somewhat embarrassing. And I'm the uh, third most qualified person in my house, so I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm feeling your pain. Yeah, yeah. So now, look, I'm, I'm sort of coming in there to, you know, and they're very, very good of them to bring someone like me in. And, you know, I've been very well, you know, the response has been really good by the academics in particular. Right. Um, but just, you know, to bring a different perspective to the place because, you know, they're, they've got a critical role in, you know, the training and education of our young people and getting them right. I mean, at the moment, obviously, around finance, ethics is a major issue. And, <laughs> exactly. you know, we've pushed hard and I've sort of helped support the academics who are driving this to make sure that ethics training for finance students anyway is mm. almost compulsory. Yeah. And I think we've got that over the line. So, you know, it's it's good to bring a different perspective. And I think that's what the idea of an industry, um, okay. an, an industry person and perspective is in-house, on the ground, nice. um, every day. Or, so it's as much internal as with the students, it sounds like. It's a bit of, bit of a combination of kind of bringing some real-world experience to the academics as well as helping the students kind of get make that connection? Oh, totally. And, right. it, and it's very operational in many respects. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't run courses. Um, right. I, I do the odd lecture here and there and uh, I do a lot of mentoring around uh, particularly honours students. Um uh, but yeah, it's a lot of engagement with the academics and, you know, and actually helping them engage too. Like yeah, how, right, how, right. how do they, like the conversation, which is a great, um, you know, portal where academics. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. I love it, the conversation. It is. Look, there's a huge amount of content, yep. but you know, you, it's, it's definitely worth, you know, looking at regularly to see if there's something interesting to you. Mm. But it, you know, it doesn't come naturally to a lot of academics to try and put something in at 800 words. I mean, yeah. you know, they're used to writing in a much longer format and, and, and often, you know, look, Bearing in mind, my father was a professor of economics <laughs> okay. and uh, very much old school. So you finally joined the family trade. Yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, academics, when they're writing for their, yeah. in their professional environment, yeah. are writing for other academics, yeah, right, right, right. which is very different to writing for the broader community. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
they've all got the skills. It's just about training, and I just sort of try and give them some tips. And you know, obviously, my economics has been very commercial, mm. and that's all been about communications. And mm. so, mm. you know, you know the drill. You're writing every day, uh, and you're writing for a very wide audience. Yeah, yeah, very good. Speaking of your economics, mate, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the the broadest question I'm gonna ask you so far today. Given that experience, given where you've been, given where you are, given your passion of watching the economy, having a view on these things, a very simple question, how is the economy doing? Look, I reckon it's doing really well. Okay. Um, and that's that, not a common view. That's right. And that's where I think people are misreading it. I mean, look, the, the, the market economists, business economists are often trained for commercial, for the, in their commercial environment to think about momentum, where it's going. Mm. And one of the things that I've really... You know, struck me since I've left banking because I spent, you know, I basically went into markets and banking from out of uni. Right. Um, you know, is, is how easy it is to lose sight of the sort of structural and long term issues. Um, okay. And the reality is, what we've seen in Australia is a, is a major household balance sheet event. Um, and it hasn't been driven by um, enforced stress into households, it right. hasn't been driven by higher interest rates and mortgage failures or mass unemployment and job losses and stuff. It's actually been a um, deliberate response by individuals in our community to, you know, act mm. a bit more financially responsible. Yeah, right, right. And um, that's a really good thing. Now, uh, GDP so growth, though, is not fantastic. We hear up to a third of households apparently in mortgage stress. You don't have to go too far now. The headline writers are in the business of wanting to make us read, so there's yeah. something about that. But there's also... Something. something. Okay, there's a lot about that. <laughs> it's everything about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's not hard to, to pull together a group of stats and say, on these 15 measures... The data seems to be saying, if, you, if you're that way inclined, there's reason to be, if not worried, at least not feel like things are going as well as maybe I'm hearing you say things are going. Well, look, we've had a cyclical slowdown. Growth is, 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 is negligible and, in fact, is probably zero in the private yeah. sector. Um, and that makes us vulnerable, uh, particularly vulnerable right now to a rise in unemployment because, you know, consumer sentiment's a bit iffy for a whole range of reasons. Um, but consumers are rebuilding their buffers and this sort of thing. Look... I think you touched on the point here, the, the, the media and, and actually increasingly, unfortunately, um, business economists um, mm. seem to, you know, to get attention, the story has to be there. And, right, right. you know, nothing to see here, all's well, move on, is not going to cut it commercially, mm. you know, unfortunately. Um, look, yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, you can point to a range of statistics, but, you know, dismal science, right? This is the problem. It's a complex thing. We get data that probably is lucky to cover half the reality of what's going out there. The right, trained right. and professional you know, economists and analysts and they're, are there to fill in the gaps yeah. um, with judgment um, and, you know, an open mind. And, uh, and often, you know, we're going to have lots of different data points that you can paint a picture in, mm -hmm. but it's, you know. So it's, I, I just think looking at the whole thing is that, yes, we're vulnerable. Yes, we've had a cyclical slowdown, but it's, you know, nothing like a recession. It's not widespread financial distress. Mm. It's a deliberate adjustment in response to, you know, hot, lower house prices uh, mainly. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're getting through it, mm -hmm. you know. And actually until, you know, the last four or five months, I thought this was a really powerful thing that we were doing, a sort of a, you know, you could argue whether it's a deleveraging of our household balance sheets or not, but certainly, you know, mm. you know, improving the financial position of the Australian, you know, household sector um, at the at the expense of a bit of growth for yep, sure, yep. but certainly not a creating a recession. Around. Without a major dislocating event that might otherwise kind of cause, yeah. Exactly. So when you say it's great, is it, is it great in terms of objectively great 
in, in relative terms or is it just great because, you know what, from where we were, we're getting through it in a pretty good way and things will probably be okay? We asked about the economy and what I'm talking about is that that thing out there called the economy is functioning pretty well. Right, right. You know, in terms of growth and performance, yeah, yeah. it's not great. Okay, <laughs> okay. That's an interesting distinction. Okay. Oh, no, it's an important distinction. It is, Because yeah. when people say, oh, how's the economy going? Well, what what you know, what is the you know yeah right okay you know, how is the economy yeah yeah and I would say the economy is good and we've right. actually demonstrated in the last two years that it's actually functioning really well okay um, the reality of its performance is that growth has slowed down a lot and we're vulnerable to an adverse shock for sure um, and look you know it could go pear shaped yeah yeah you know, but my view is that it's not going to and that actually what we've seen in the last few years is a demonstration that the economy is in good shape. I, all those mm, reforms mm. and all that sort of stuff yeah. that we've talked about for decades um, are holding us in good stead. So the structure itself is pretty good, even if maybe the flows are slower than they otherwise would be. Oh, exactly, yeah. We're, we're structurally set up to be in a good place. Yeah, and I can tell you, structure is paramount, apart from the dislocating crisis event. But look, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, yeah, we've got a debt problem, mm. but so is the whole world, <laughs> and that will be... Yeah. We'll work that out. That'll be worked out when inflation comes back. Right. You know, you take interest rates up to 5% um, and the world will be working out its debt problem, including in Australia. That, that is, in, in a very short sentence, you, you've, you've raised about three or four different flags I need to ask you about. Well, that's, so. that's, that's, that's a completely different story. But, right, right, right. Um, and, and whether we face that any time in the next 10 years yeah, is, yeah, is questionable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so look, are we in for a long term, a long period of below average growth just because of that debt? I mean, in, in one view of the world, rising debt has helped to fuel economic growth for totally. decades. Yep. At some point, we feel like, I mean, well, I even know in hindsight, we feel like we're getting towards the end of that because there's simply not that much more capacity to increase debt. Now, yep. maybe we would have said that 20 years ago, right? So I'm mindful that only in hindsight can we really know where the ceiling is. Yep. is are we paying the piper now for the next X years while we to your point, deleverage, just get back into something more resembling normality? Yeah, so I like to think about it in terms of what's an optimal debt level right. uh, you know, on a balance sheet. And, and you know, I think in the broadest terms, you think about businesses, yeah, consumers, yeah. governments. Um, and look, you know, we don't know. Like you know, People were saying 10 years ago, oh, household debt's 150% of <laughs> right. income. Yeah, you know, yeah. Is that the ceiling? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it went to 160 pretty quick. And then America... Basically, its housing market broke mm. with the subprime crisis, mm. and we look back, and they're at one hundred and twenty percent of debt to income, oh, much lower than ours. <laughs> That's right. Oh, and guess what? We've gone <laughs> to one hundred and ninety. So, so who's quite, worried? Yeah. So, in terms of what the ceiling or the, yeah. the stress point is, 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 is it's not going to be a set number. It's going to, you know, the environment's going to matter. In terms of an equilibrium, yeah, we're finding that because really the whole modern, um, you know, financial economic system started with. You know, deregulation and technology that came through in essentially the 70s and 80s. Yeah. The debt increased and that was essentially a, a, you know, moving balance sheets to a, a, an optimal level of debt. Mm -hmm. Have we overshot? Probably. Um, uh, so I think your proposition is right. So what's the, what's the next 10 years hold in terms of growth? Well, yes, debt has certainly got to be part of the mix talking about what gave us growth in the last 30 years. Right, you right. Know? But then the fundamentals are basically population and productivity. Um, we all know that population's you know, going to slow mm -hmm. uh, to the point of being negative in many countries and more countries moving that way. Mm. Australia's got an advantage there through immigration. So we're, 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 we're world leader in that respect. Our population mm -hmm. fundamentals are good. And then the productivity story, which is without doubt the black box yeah. of macroeconomic sort of thinking and assessing the performance and, and assessing all those vulnerabilities. I mean, lots of productivity takes care of debt. Mm -hmm. You know, lot, no productivity makes debt a problem sort of thing. So... I think, you know, and then there's the great one, which is 
you know, industrial revolution 4.0, zero productivity, go figure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, have we got a period um, of much slower growth for a long time, like 10 years? The answer has got to be yes because right. of the population trend. Mm. Um, you can only assume productivity forward about where you've got now. I'm a little bit more hopeful than probably zero productivity. Okay. Um, and then, of course, yeah, debt's, debt's not going to be making the same contribution it did. And, and mm. you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a detraction, but, you know, the fact that it's not contributing means we're going to get less growth in the future than in the past. Yeah, yeah. The productivity question, I've got to ask you just because you raised it. You said maybe zero-ish, maybe a bit better than that going forward. If you were asked to describe, define the problem with productivity growth, I mean, it, other than population, as you say, over the long term, productivity is the, almost the only thing that adds to GDP on a per capita basis, right? Everything else is washed. Largely, yep. Um, I'm a simple man, mate. I'm sure there's more detail than that. But let's stick no, with that that's premise. It. That's it. Productivity is the only thing that improves GDP over the long term, other than maybe some debt. Um, what is what is stopping the productivity gain? We had such a great century, really, of productivity growth that was just phenomenal. Um, was supposed, to, as you say, Industrial Revolution 4.0 was supposed to bring along even more of that because mm. computers, da, 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 you know, we can go through the story. Why has it not come to pass? Look, um, look. The reality is, if I knew the answer, then, you know, <laughs> I'd probably be had a phone call from the prime minister's office or something. Or, um, look, I think there's a no, the, the, the reality is there's a lot of stuff at work here. Okay. Um, so the first piece is where the the big sort of wave of liberalisation and sort of neoliberal. Mm-hmm economics that started with Reagan and Thatcher and Keating and, and, and Hawke here mm-hmm. and everything, you know, that's in, that's in reverse. Right. You know, um, at the very least it's, it's paused, you know, and, 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 and that's gone hand in, you know, that's in terms of economic reforms. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially we made our economies look a lot more like an economic model. Right, right, right. Economic reform. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we've reached social limits on that. Uh, politics or society? Well, just limits? distribution issues. Yeah, right. uh, you know, I mean, uh, the world isn't an economic model. It doesn't. It's not a mathematical thing. Yeah. It's human beings. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, the politics, mm-hmm. which is partly a reflection of those some of the economic issues and partly related to other things. The politics in democracies, in particular, has made big reform hard. Mm-hmm. So there's that globalization, um, which is definitely. Um, paused, if not in reverse, with right. Trump and various other things. I mean, protectionism and barriers to trade have essentially been rising, rising since mm-hmm. the GFC. Mm-hmm. Um, but trade, yeah, but Trump's made it sort of really explicit with his tariffs because yeah, that's right. obviously the most explicit kind of barrier to trade. Yep. But that's of course working against productivity, and ironically, um, might actually introduce some inflation. That otherwise, wouldn't have been there, right? That's the other. That's the other kind of unintended well, consequence, or maybe it's well, intended. Well, it's going to it's going to put upward pressure on prices. But you know, the thing we're seeing and have for for many years is that that's not necessarily inflationary because mm. it, you can have, it can actually have an impact on demand, like right, a right, tax. Right. You know, yeah, like yeah. when oil prices go so up, per unit price increase, but an overall reduction in demand. Well, it just people shy away from it, right. um, and of course, it can also cut into margins and mm, be a mm. profitability issue, which mm. is you know so. Okay, so they're the sort of the big things. But I actually think one of the things that gets very little treatment um, is getting more treatment. And the reason I talked about why QE and some of these unconventional monetary policies as is a, is a sort of a standard approach to monetary policy are dangerous is mm-hmm. that I think we are losing the um, underlying allocative vigour of the economy because of QE. Now, what I mean by that is essentially an, a critical element of you know, a market society, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, mm. is that we 
turn capital over to its most effective use. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can think about, you know, extra money going into savings, super, that gets allocated, you know, whether it's in the stock market, the bond market, through the banks to the most effective and efficient use. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's another element to that, which is the bankruptcy mechanism. That's pulling money out from inefficient firms. There's a natural sort of, you know, Darwinian process here. <laughs> right, right. Um, but when you keep monetary policy really easy and yeah. interest rates well below where their natural level is, then you're actually short-circuiting that bankruptcy mechanism. Now, the research that's coming out and the best data sets are out of Japan and Europe because they've had these this environment for the longest mm. is that, you know, when these firms are allowed to stay in play, not only is their productivity pretty crap because that's why they're going out the back door, um, without going out the back door, right, right. but it drags down the productivity of the whole industry. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, and the thing is the data, the, the work on this is data, complex data, deep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I met one academic, a German guy who's actually got an, uh, you know, a position in, in, in Holland and he's basically spent the first four or five years of his career just creating the data set that can really get into this. Right. Um, so, look, we're going to find out a lot more about this, but that hurts productivity because you're not pulling out, Mm-mm. you know, and, and people say, well, look, you're saving jobs. Yeah. But it's about balance, yeah. right? You can't... You're, you're saving the wrong jobs, right? I mean, individual, exactly. at an individual personal level, I mean, it's massively important for them to keep their individual job. Yeah. And in an economy, you want the resources put, to your point about capital, yeah. the human capital also needs to go to the most productive use, right? Exactly. And look, what we don't fully understand, and I've heard all sorts of different views on this, and I certainly haven't done any deep research on it, but is how is this sort of you know, short-circuiting or hampering the benefits of this mm. technological revolution. Mm. You, know, in, you know, you can think of disruptors or firms that disrupt themselves or what have you. But the reality is if the credit efficiency, the allocative efficiency um, within the economy is not as good, then it's not going to be as dynamic and it's not going to be as changing. Um, and therefore, you'd have to think it doesn't pick up the um, new technologies quickly. And therefore, that could be an explanation for productivity. And if... If that's the case, right. then these central banks are essentially shooting us, themselves in the foot. Right. And, of course, part of that whole story with low productivity and an economy that lacks vigour is also it probably keeps inflation low, so they're starting to chase their tail. We, this idea of being stuck. Mm-hmm. These economies go to low growth and then they get stuck there. Right, right. Yeah. So, look, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a theory. It's mm-hmm. a thesis. Mm-hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm really happy that the RBA has come out and said, you know, we'll consider QE, but... You know, has to, you know, really I think, to, I think yeah. in their bones, they know they're not going to come out yeah. and, and talk all these terrible things about QE because you know, they'll never get invited to an international conference. Is that good or bad? <laughs> uh, it's important <laughs> the engagement. Okay. But you know, Japan, ECB, Bank of England, yeah. and the Fed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, that, how much of the world's money supply? QE Central, right? Yeah. So yeah. you can't, you know, apparently, you know, this research, anecdote, not to be named, you know, ECB won't see him. Yeah, right. Buddha's Bank will. <laughs> Uh, but the ECB won't seem. Um, maybe that's being a bit rough. But yeah. uh, anyway, that's one of the issues I think is really yeah. important. There's, there's either an irony or a or a natural uh, ending in the fact that neoliberalism ends with corporate socialism. <laughs> so there's something to that. Well, I, I haven't. I, you just introduced me to the concept, but it just, it just strikes me that to your point, we start with neoliberalism, we end up with effectively corporate socialism. Well, Marx always said that you know communism is the end game. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> do you think we get there? We get look, there that way. He was around a couple hundred years ago, right? So he couldn't actually articulate <laughs> this particular environment we're in now. But right, you know, right. maybe you know he was a very, very smart guy, Karl Marx. I'm not a communist. I'm certainly not. But there's certainly yeah. some hints in the air that you know that that, that free market, yeah. you know, neoliberal environment that dominated the 80s and 90s and 90s yeah. is shifting. Getting the answer wrong doesn't necessarily mean you're asking the wrong questions, does it? No.
Uh, mate, I, I'm going to ask you, I know, I know monetary is your kind of bailiwick generally speaking, but I have to ask you about fiscal policy a little bit, just to put the extra half of the economy. We, we seem to, the RBA seems to be the only game in town most of the time for most people. The, the headlines, the stories, the opinions, the views, QE or not, as you've already talked about. Um, two questions, I guess, related. The first is the importance of a balanced budget, either in the short term or over a cycle. Is that really important? How important is it? Also, too, you know, how much are we letting governments, not to be party political, but just to you know, use the political class for a second, how much are we letting governments off the hook when we're asking central banks to do, I would argue, too much of the heavy lifting? Let's put my colours to the mast. Um, you know, I would argue that the governments are doing too little of the work and avoiding political scrutiny by being able to put that, throw their hands in the air and point at the, the central banks and say they're supposed to be fixing it. How's that balance feel to you at the moment? Yeah, no, and I think, you know, um, Phil Lowe, the RBA governor, made that exact point in his very good speech just before Christmas and said, you know, we don't want monetary policy to, you know, stop other, put, you know, take the pressure off other arms of policy. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point. And you're right. I mean, look, it's it's fascinating, again, being in the banking financial system for most of my career, sitting out looking in and then listening <laughs> to these people just like, harass the RBA to cut as if Right, right. You know, it's 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 phenomenal. Actually, and they feel like they have to; they almost have to cut because the others don't. There's, yeah. there's some cause and effect there of you, you focus them say, well, "Are they going? to are not going to? We're not going to do anything." Yeah. I've got to figure. You know, Phil Lowen before I'm Glenn Stevenson, they're saying, "Well, I guess I'm the guy. Like I, I'm I'm the last man in the boat here. If everyone else is getting out, I've got to make something happen. I yeah. guess I'm kind of forced to, right?" Yeah. Look, there's certainly uh, that that element, and I think at the moment um, we're in territory where it's, it's it's there's too much pressure being put on the RBA. Don't underestimate that episode when um, Glenn Stevens raised rates uh, like six mm. years ago, and the Telegraph said, "You know, the most useless man in Australia." Apart from what it did to Glenn, but that's yeah, yeah. You know, that did a lot to the rest of the central bank, right. and I think that was a really bad move from the Telegraph. Mm. It was mm. completely unfair, lack of dignity. Yeah, yeah. But of course, it's a shift of their vi- point to where they're very scared to do anything wrong. Yeah, you know, to the point where this concept of raising rates is almost like you're evil. Mm. Yeah, mm. which you know, it's a, it's about a long view. These tough decisions have to be made on occasion, um, and even even if it does come at a short-term cost. Look at what Sweden's done. Sweden's just stopped negative interest rates after five years. Right, right. Not because of any shift in their economic environment because they realise it's having bad... It's, it's, it's having perverse effects in their financial system, their economy, and maybe even in their society, which may not show up for 10 years, but they're going to take a cost now mm. to make sure those things don't happen. Mm-hmm. To your point, fiscal policy. Let's just get something straight here. You know, we really get fiscal policy mixed up between what might be called fiscal stimulus, right. which is really this, the equivalent of what monetary policy does, which is a jab into the economy, <laughs> right, right. versus structural or you mm-hmm. know, you know, you know, structural policy yeah. or reform or whatever people want to call it. Permanent changes to the structures of the way government interacts with the economy, the right, society. Right. And that's an important distinction. So right now, no point for a fiscal stimulus um, because, you know, what, are we in recession? Is it, you know, a fiscal stimulus will be a sugar hit, but it's unlikely to have a lasting impact. A fiscal stimulus works, like in the GFC, or maybe if you're going into a recession, particularly if it's preemptive, to stop people completely shutting down their spending and then sending businesses to the wall. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can just sort of tie things over. We don't need that right now. That's not the environment. We may, you know, if if I'm wrong and if we have a a further leg down in the economy and demand's really weak, a short, sharp burst might be useful. What most economists, I think, are getting at, though, is, is, you know, Changes to the settings, yeah, you know, right, right. things like changes to taxes mm-hmm. and, you know, reforming of the, the structures of the economy. I mean, it's endless. There's mm-hmm. heaps of stuff. And there's no doubt we have to do that. It's politically hard to do. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I think sometimes it's overstated what's going to be achieved. I mean, I think, 
you know, the fact that we're putting pressure on monetary policy for those reasons we discussed before around productivity and mm-hmm. how, you know, too much pressure on monetary policy, yep. you know, is, 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 a, is a detrimental thing. So let's not do that. And that can be actually a good long-term benefit for the economy. Right. But I think um, there's something else that, you know, often the media and often economists who you see in the media miss is that there's not, not every problem can be solved by government. Right. Um, and sometimes we just have to, you know, tough it out, mm. you know. I don't believe the economy, and I never have, in, you know, for the last year since this slowdown became really apparent, that the economy was on the verge of a sudden spike up in the unemployment rate. The all reason that the unemployment rate has risen is because of high participation. You know, which is kind of a nice problem. I mean, people, I guess, feel like they have to go to work, which is not necessarily a great thing if they're well, feeling stressed. But at some level... Well, whatever it is, it's not stressing the economy. Right. We right. are creating jobs. Right. Right. And it's that lack of job creation or worse, mm. job destruction, mm. net job mm. destruction, mm. which is where you're going to get real problems in the economy. Yeah. We're getting... Job creation, which if the part rate had stayed where it was a year ago, which itself was near an all-time high, yeah, we've yeah. gone into new uncharted territory here, then the unemployment rate would be sub-5. Any economist who at the start of 2019 had a higher unemployment rate, get them to show you a spreadsheet, did they have the part rate go up? Right. The answer is no. They thought jobs were going to be lost. Yeah. Yeah. They got it wrong. And, you know listening to them. I mean, the old thing with economic forecasting, it doesn't matter what your reasons were, as long as you, you know, got the right <laughs> cut, the right, you know. Unless you get it wrong, in which case the reasons matter, because you say, well, I used the right reasons. Well, of course, <laughs> and, you know, they'll do whatever they have to do to keep their job, but exactly. the good thing about not being in that environment anymore is actually <laughs> the outcome doesn't matter right. in terms of the short-term outcome. It's actually thinking about what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the really interesting part too, and that's where you're going to find sort of solutions to long-term challenges. So, look, I just think that, you know, the economy is actually you know, doing pretty well. It's creating mm-hmm. jobs, mm-hmm. you know. Sure, it could be doing better, but, yeah. you know, you redline this thing, yeah. there will be consequences. So that, that's something I've always been mindful of. People who say we need to boost the economy. There is, in a low inflation environment, in a lower growth environment, there's kind of lower natural growth maybe. Maybe that's not the case, but it seems like we're mm-hmm. at a new normal of lower growth, maybe because of that debt thing we talked about before. If you create too much stimulus, if you kind of get things going too far, that is what presages most deep recessions, right? Is the economy getting way overheated? A little bit like, frankly, the recession we had to have, and you may have a view on that, but Keating's famous recession we had to have where the RBA needed to yank the handbrake on as hard as it possibly could to try and literally take some heat out of things. You don't want to get to that point of having to do that. If you can muddle along and then get to a decent level, you'd rather a long period of suboptimal growth than a period of excess growth followed by a recession. Yeah, yeah. No, I think all of that makes sense. In terms of the late 80s and that recession, there was a couple of things. One is... Volcker in the US, the central bank governor in the late 70s, early 80s, he put that economy, the US mm-hmm. economy, into recession to get rid of the high inflation of the right. 70s. You right. know, I mean, can you even comprehend a central banker doing that in this day and age? <laughs> I mean, the guy just died actually a month ago and yeah. uh, the accolades were huge. And it shows you they know what's the right thing to do, they just don't have the guts to do it. Inflation of 13, 14% from memory when he was... Oh, he had well, to pull we, the, the inflation that the, the Western world experienced in the 70s mm-hmm. was um, greater macroeconomic freak event, yeah. you know, black swan, whatever you want to call it, right, than right. anything that happened in 2008. Yeah. You know, in terms of the long sweep of human history, we had never seen inflation like that. And, you know, he was the guy who, had, you know, great risk to him, his own standing. And mm-hmm. you know, he took mm-hmm. a heap of heat. Jimmy Carter thought he was the reason they lost the election. Yeah, yeah. Even Reagan, who sort of liked the fact that, you know, he did that to Carter, started <laughs> to lose his patience. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the point is that, you know, Australia, so that got rid of inflation in America yeah. and in many other countries sort of followed suit, but Australia mm-hmm. didn't. Yeah. And we'd reformed our economy, Hawke Keating opening up, and, you know, we had a 
major, major sort of liberalisation of our financial system, which mm -hmm. created a big bubble in commercial property and a few other things. <laughs> yep. And so, like, we sort of had to deal with that. So that, I think that's the framing for Keating. We're, we're not in that environment now. But you're exactly right. You don't want to get yourself into that. I mean, in a way, that that environment was, A, partly given to us, either high inflation, mm -hmm. although our own structures were, you know, not helping. Mm -hmm. um, but also um, it was part of the reform process, you know. I, I think a lot of economies that open up their financial system and liberalise it can mm -hmm. sort of go a bit overboard in the initial reaction, which is what sort of we saw here, Canada, the Scandies, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. But just, sorry, back to the fiscal thing because I didn't mm -hmm. answer that for you. Do I think um, a balanced budget is important? And I think, yeah, it is because in, in Australia we sort of, you know, we, we've, we've got a very high household debt level. Um, you know, corporate debt's pretty high. Uh, we have very active state level governments that right, have, okay. you know, their own access to markets. I worked at the New South Wales Treasury Corporation mm -hmm. earlier in my career. Um, and the federal government, I think, does need to, to, to keep an eye on things, you know, and, and for a few reasons. One is, um, you know, the more that they rack up debt, the more pressure that goes into the system because right, there's right. debt in, the, you know, there's more debt that the economy generates. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously we borrow overseas, although not lately. But but more importantly, you know, they, they it gives confidence um, to, the, to the rest of the community that if something goes wrong... Mm. The government's there, so right, something okay. something I've always been fascinated with is, you know, well, not fascinated with, but you know, I think we need to understand is saving and investment and consumption, the fundamentals of macroeconomics, mm. and you know, it's hard to measure, but essentially there is a very strong inverse relationship between the public sector saving rate, mm. i.e., the budget position, yep. um, and household saving. Is know? that right? Yeah, and it's been like that for forty years. So when governments are in deficit, we're saving harder. When governments are in surplus, we're happy to go out and spend. Yeah, and look, this is a, a you know sort of a Ricardian equivalence, which I don't expect anyone. to I have understand. no idea what that is. No, um, <laughs> which I can tell you, most economists sort of run for the hills when they think. But it basically, is, it's not going to make good podcasts. Just we'll put it that way. Yeah, it doesn't. But I'll explain what it is. <laughs> it essentially says that if the government borrows money yep. um, and racks up debt, then taxpayers go, "Well, I'm going to have to pay for that in the future with higher taxes, so right. I'm going to save more now." Okay, uh, it's a very rational. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it doesn't work. You know, most economists think it doesn't work because of the time horizons. I, it's future okay. generations rather than you and. Yeah, the fact is, actually, it looks like it does work. There is there's some, some there's some confidence thing. It's almost uh, maybe more emotional than real in that sense. Totally. And okay. look, this is one of the areas of economics that we're you know through behavioural economics and a whole bunch of stuff we're learning more about. Mm -hmm. And you know, some of the great minds like Robert Schiller in the US and so forth are paying more attention to. And he's written um, a great book recently, actually, Schiller on on exactly that. With the stories we tell ourselves, narrative economics. Like, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, yep. I haven't read the book fully yet, but it's sitting there on the to do list. <laughs> it's not, not the most engaging Sunday afternoon by the pool sort of read. No. Anyway. Um, yeah, so look, I think there is a need for, you know, the government to be to be careful. I think mm -hmm. the rebuilding of the budget position was important. Yeah. Um, do they need to sort of do it by hook or by crook? Of course not. Yeah. And the fact is our budget has essentially been in balance for a couple of years now because, you know, anywhere within a percentage point right, of GDP right, right. or half a percentage of GDP, it's, you know, it's not... It doesn't make good headlines, but economists realise that it's close enough to flat. Yeah, look, the, th the thing that worries me is that it is a political objective. And I know this mm -hmm. has got a lot of airtime in uh, Australia, but it's, it's worth talking about. Yeah, if, yeah. if you know, the Liberal Party wants to create long-term political advantage um, at the short-term expense of the economy, yeah. well, that's not good, mm -hmm. um, I don't believe. Now, I don't necessarily think that's happening. Um, I, I mean, I do think the, the politics is there, but I don't think it's really costing us a lot at okay. the moment. 
But then the other thing is you shouldn't underestimate is actually the personalities involved. So for Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, you know, they're going to get big ticks in Liberal mm-hmm, Party mm-hmm. history for, you know, bringing home the bacon yeah, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Fixing so Labor's dead, all that kind of those, – those headlines that will be in the next election campaign, I'm sure. Oh, it's just about, you know, when all the Liberal Party people get together. These guys are heroes. Just remember, most right, of these okay. politicians, yeah. it's – Party first, country second. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably hate me for saying that. No, you're dead right, mate, on both sides. It's, it's, it's yeah, a, it's both a debacle. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. God knows what goes on with the Greens, <laughs> but um, forest first. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, look, uh, you know, you, you do need to get to a point. We are going to get to a point if this mm-hmm. economy doesn't um, sharpen up where they're – that. Um, you know, it's going to start to look a little bit irresponsible not to mm-hmm. for the government to be seen to be doing more because I, you know, I, I'm praying the RBA just stops cutting rates. Right, we're okay. just we're just miles away. Yeah, yeah. from an equilibrium neutral interest rate, and I think it's damaging the long the long term damage to our financial system and our mm-hmm. economy is real. It's hard to measure. It's easily debated. Mm. There's a lot of emotion in it, and unfortunately, the reason I feel like I need to come out strong on this is because. Most economists are coming out strong the other way for commercial reasons. Yeah, okay. I to get a forecast right, to get some activity in the bond market, <laughs> you know, to see something go yeah, on. Yeah. You know, is it a great conviction of theirs? Well, actually, all you look at is markets and macroeconomic things. You know, actually, I haven't seen any research from you about the long-term interests of the society. Right, you know? right, right. So, you know, it's about we forget that the economy is supposed to serve the society, not vice versa. Right. Oh. Completely. I mean, yeah. that's a major issue around the corporate sector, but we won't go. <laughs> uh, I mean, there is, there is a, this is probably a part of the comment, but I'll, I'll get your thoughts, that there is something bizarre about the fact that after all these horrible bushfires, all the rebuilding is going to add to GDP. There'll be, a, there'll be a short-term hit to GDP because we all stop spending for a bit while everything's going on, and the reconstruction effort, replacing perfectly good housing in the first place, doesn't fix, doesn't change the balance sheet of the, com- the country, but it in- improves the activity, and therefore GDP will be lower for a short time, higher for a short time, actually creating no net value but we don't tend to judge it that way. Well, it gets back to what we are talking about before about, you know, talking about how good is the economy, its structure versus what GDP is. Right, you know, right This right. is a classic example of how the limitations of GDP. And trust me, there are many of them, not least <laughs> what we do to our environment to get right, that right. GDP. You can't measure externalities. Exactly. But anyway, look, you know, the bushfire is like a war. You've, we've just taken a huge hit, well, not a huge hit in the scheme of things, but mm-hmm. we've taken a big yeah, hit yeah. on our balance sheet, on the yeah. asset side. You know, it's, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it'll help growth in net because mm-hmm. we've got to, re- well, assuming we replace it. Yeah. Um, and all the economists will go through their bits and pieces of what the channels are for that. Um, but our balance sheet's weakened. Look, yeah. Fortunately, at this stage, um, what damage has been done, whether it's measured in terms of um, houses, mm-hmm. uh, productive capacity around farming or otherwise, mm-hmm. and that infrastructure is pretty mild. But I think it starts to give us a few hints of the fact that, you know, big catastrophic environmental changes um, can have big implications for economic for the economy Um, and the other thing I think we should forget I mean you know it's early January or mid January Hmm. Um, this ain't over so look it's very it's very sad as you said at the top of the show and I think Mm -hmm. we all feel the same way but um, there's a long way to go and I I think it is going to change the it's going to shift the way the centre of Australian society thinks about this stuff. I think there's been a shift. Can't yeah. be a bad thing. Tra- tra- tragedy and major traumatic mm. uh, cataclysmic events in all sorts of fields, but um, you know, in all sorts of sort where they mm, come mm, from, mm, tend to have political ramifications. They capture the attention of the of the of the community. Yeah, yeah, nice. Mate, I'm going to take a, a quick, well, a little bit, of, a little bit of change of direction. You, you're a you're an independent thinker. You've 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 moved outside the realms of maybe mainstream uh, economic thought necessarily. I'm sure you always were, but you're certainly freer to say what you want. Yep. So I will ask you: What is one thing you think most people believe 
one of the big sacred cows of economics you think are worth slaying? If you were, if you're going to stand up in front of a room of economists and say, for the love of God, people, stop saying X or stop believing Y, what what are some of the one or two of the big sacred cows of economics that that most people are getting wrong? You think? Yeah, look, I am an industry professor, not a real professor. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not I'm, I'm not that over the. It's one of the good the ones, thing. but isn't it? <laughs> Uh, look, I don't. I, no, it's a it's a tough one. I mean, look, I think mm. one of the things that um, we've talked about around monetary policy, I think I feel strongly about, and that's you know not consensus by a long shot, mm-hmm. particularly in the in the mainstream of of, of our community right now. You yep. know, the fact that markets are priced for a February rate cut, um, and that major um, institutions who have a you know an oligopoly position in lending to this economy, either big four banks, yeah. are calling it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's insane. Hmm. I don't think it'll happen. I don't. I oh, don't, really? I don't. I don't think Phil's going to cut rates in February. It's been a while since the banks got one wrong. I, I don't. I can't work out cause and effect where the RBA cuts because they think the, the banks think they should, or, be, or the banks know because the RBA has given them enough of a tip that they can forecast with certainty. But it's been a while since the market got one badly so wrong. So I'll give you a couple of insights into this. Seeing so that been in the role for a little while. I wasn't going to ask you, but you were, I'm happy to hear them. Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, I'm not going to give you much. All I'm going to say <laughs> is I'm going to spoil your conspiracy theory because. A, yep. the RBA doesn't do what banks want them to. They, okay. uh, in any way, shape, or form. Okay. In fact, they, if anything, in my career, I would have, you know, in terms of the last 25 years, if, if, if there was even a hint of that, they'd probably do the opposite just to prove the point. <laughs> Make a point. Yeah. Has, I don't think that's ever happened. Okay. No, that doesn't happen. I think the governor actually answered a question about that about six months ago. Okay. Um, they do, however, you know, respect market pricing, yep. um, which, of course, can be influenced by those bank mm-hmm. economists. Um, and that's, of course, as the governor said, is, is around things like the currency and so forth. Mm. I think the governor knows, and we should never forget, that all that stuff's transitory. Yeah. You know, all the RBA has to do is go, we're not you know, cutting rates this month, we're <laughs> looking, the next move will be down at the moment if it is going to be. And, and you know, the currency might go up a little bit, but yeah. it's not going to have yeah. a big effect. So, yeah. so that's the first thing. The other thing is... Um, Big bank economists don't get tips from the central bank. No, no, I'm sure they don't. Um, I wasn't just anything necessarily directly. It was more just that sense of interpretation. The, the, yeah, and, and the roles each felt like they had to play in that. In that yeah, field. look, I mean, I think I, I don't think the central bank. Uh, I think the central bank has got to a point now where it does its communications for itself. I mean, in this yeah, market, right. you go back 10, 10 15, 20 years mm-hmm. and they pick journalists to help them get the right. message out. Yeah, okay. But they, they do so much of it themselves now. I mean, it's always a tricky one for them. I, I actually think, I, I if you want to talk about a sacred cow that's worth slaying, I think mm. central bank transparency is rubbish. Um, I am glad you said I, that. I think um, one of the great failings of, well, one of the problems with monetary policy now, but one of the great failings in economic theory mm. is mm. The, the way they think about expectations. Expectations. Mm-hmm. I feel I have something to say on this because basically I spent my career forecasting yeah, yeah. expectations. Yeah. And I've watched as I was a strategist in markets where you know you're not you're not only doing your own stuff, you're watching everyone else. Yeah, right. There's, there's a lot of human <laughs> frailty, I tell you. Bluff and double buff, yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, just you know, failure constantly. Right, okay. Um, but look, I think um, you know, in, <laughs> in terms of the central banks when they operate their best is when they keep markets guessing. So the greatest yeah. policy failure I've seen was when we came out of the tech rec recession in 2002. Mm. Bernanke, who was the deputy governor, or was prominent on the board, but Greenspan was still the chair of the Federal Reserve. Mm. Um, and Bernanke was thinking it was the Great Depression and they took rates to ridiculous levels and then they just 
were so gentle in their rate hike to the point where the whole cycle was 25 mm-hmm. points every six weeks. Right. And, I mean, it's basically a bunch of economists thinking that, you know, they're going to, you know, tell the world and we're the greatest and all this. And it's yeah, like, yeah. you don't know what's going to happen, mate. <laughs> yeah, and you go right. try, you know, I know people want a bit of confidence so yeah, you can give the yeah. old reassuring speech, but yeah, that's what, yeah. that's the Churchill style, mate. Yeah, not yeah. that you actually know. And actually raising rates 25 points every six weeks for three years yeah. destroyed, you know, the risk role that markets play. Yeah. And I think created the Great Recession. I mean, they're Interesting. not, oh, Bernanke is on the whole thing for the last five years trying to defend his legacy. Right. I think he's completely... Look, I loved his work. He's a bright guy. I've met mm-hmm. him. But, yeah, they got it wrong. And I think I think you go back to your Ian McFarlane days here yeah. in the RBA and probably Bernie Fraser only caught the tail of his career. But, you know, be elusive. Mm-hmm. You know, don't say too much. The future's uncertain. You, you know, We don't want to get caught up with our reputation in this business mm-hmm. of trying to tell the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, be transparent in the sense that be reasonably honest, but be careful because, you know, you don't want to... You know, let, let, let people like me, the chief economist of banks, go out there and mm-hmm. make views yeah, yeah. and have forecasts and take the hits on getting it wrong because you're going to. <laughs> yeah. And, you yeah. know, and, and don't be worried about surprising markets mm-hmm. every now and again. I mean, don't go hiking rates by a percentage point on, yeah. you know, Tuesday morning. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this idea of certainty and I think it undermines effective financial markets. Mm-hmm. I, I feel much smarter, Warren, because I've had that view for a while and now I feel like <laughs> I've, I've had, had that view r- r- <laughs> confirmed. In the sense that if you tell someone six months out there's a rate cut coming, you effectively made the rate cut. I mean, markets price in that far in anyway. They go, great, we know that's going to happen. So let's keep, and then they kind of move forward from that point. You're almost, you're basically just kind of, you're, just, you're phoning in the rate increase or the rate decrease, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, you're looking at the Australian circumstance because every market's different. But, mm. you know, priced in is yeah. going to affect the currency for right, sure. Right. But it doesn't affect the banks. And if bank funding rates are, you know, affected by the pricing in, yeah, like the rates yeah, in here, but yeah. the actual benchmarks here, that creates a problem for them. And mm. I think that's the real story, interesting macro financial mm-hmm. story in Australia right now is the residential housing market. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. gone ballistic again. I was going to ask you about that, so give, give us your thoughts. Well, it's gone ballistic again. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting a reprieve because yes. it's, you know, yes. Christmas. Yes. Um, the market basically stops for about... I'd say four weeks and is very mm-hmm. quiet for about eight. Mm. Um, you know, Australia has the double whammy of Christmas and summer holidays. Yeah. Um, it'll, it, well. I mean, time for the cricket, though. Yeah, good time. I mean, it's, oh, it's such a great time of year in <laughs> Australia. Well, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, yeah, the new world yeah. of bushfires and stuff is, seems to be a permanent feature now. But mm. Um, mm. typically, it's one. Of, this is the best time of year in this country. And maybe it's because the residential property market's <laughs> shut down. I mean, it is a source of evil. There's some cause and effect for you. Oh, Jesus. I mean, that's the, the punting, <laughs> the debt, the, 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 the sort of non-productive wealth accumulation, all this sort of – I mean, I could bring the full Calvinistic out for you. <laughs> no, look, putting the, the alarmism aside, mm-hmm. the, the market has done something that is not characteristic of our residential property market and that's right, right. what we've been calling around other markets a v-shaped recovery yeah okay you know the, the history of residential property markets are nice smooth cycles they can mm. you know be punchy and last for a while mm, mm. but this jump right. i mean i mean for me it's uh, it, you know evidence enough those rate cuts were a waste of time yeah, and will okay. only do more harm than good yeah that's fair um so what do i think i think it's 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 I can't see how it's not going to go from strength to strength um, over the first half of the year. And let me hit, hit you with an idea. I, I, there's, a, there's talk about the housing market being financialized. That is, that it's become more of a financial asset than it was previously, which is largely just a, a lifestyle asset, if you like. And we can argue about the terms, but broadly that. On one reading of it, we, we talk about debt and we talk about income. 
if you look at the affordability, that is the proportion of household income that goes to repayments, that hasn't jumped markedly over 20 or 30 years because rates have fallen, which as, as you've already highlighted, as rates fall, prices should go up in a financial market. If housing is, is working that way, there's one argument to say that while it's expensive on an absolute dollar basis, it's expensive on a price to income, but price to income rather than repayments, housing may not be as, as unaffordable as it seems if you only look at those metrics and instead look at, well, how much have I got to outlay every month to yeah. pay this thing off? Oh, well, then. well, that's the reality. I mean, people will sort of say, well, you know, when's it a bubble and how's it going to burst? Well, just look at any debt bubble in any sector and it's when mm. you can't afford to pay the <laughs> pay the bubble. When the rates go up, right? Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And, and we've, we've you know, it's, it should be obvious mm-hmm. that interest rates are way too low, is in this country anyway, is when, you know, you're... you're mm ability to service is, mm-hmm. is you know sweet compared to the last 30 years but affordability is through the roof and everything like that it just right, tells right, you right. rates are out of whack with yeah, the underlying yeah. fundamentals and it's creating mm. a problem and it's doing what our central bank has always done and i think in the past it was fine to do it now mm. not fine to do it mm. is using the accumulation of household debt as the technique to get growth in the economy right right now if they've got a long-term strategic plan that we're sort of going to wean ourselves off these unsustainable ways um, by doing this gradually or something, then fine. But, you know, well, I thought that's what we were well, saying. Well, it sounds like that, right? It, it, at one point it was, hey, APRO, the RBA, they've got the, they've got their act together. Yeah. This is working really nicely. Yeah, the economy's not great, sudden, but we're, right, we're, sort right. of, we're taking a bit of heat out. 15% fallen house prices, yeah, 20% yeah. real fall, yep. biggest in the modern period. Nice little message to send to everyone, yep. especially if you can get it to stick for a little while. <laughs> And then, they, and then they just they folded <laughs> and just went, cut, 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 easing standards. Party back on. Market bounces yeah. in less than 12 months back to the high. Phenomenal. Completely undoes all the good work around expectations and mm-hmm. attitudes. Mm-hmm. And, and it know. kind of locks the RBA out of being able to raise rates meaningfully from here anyway. I mean, it, to some degree, there's so much debt now at the current levels and at higher prices the RBA can probably only go up, what, half a percent, maybe three quarters before it starts to put those same people on a massive mortgage stress, which brings us back to what does it do to the economy and to GDP. Yeah, if that well, may be the, the shock that we I mean, don't want. You know, you get your, your bleeding hearts out there saying cut rates and get, you know, jobs and all this mm-hmm. stuff you hear. Mm. It's just, you know, it's so misguided. It's not funny. But, you know, what's it like sucking a young person into an unaffordable house right, then right. raising rates on them yeah, two years yeah. ago and, and forcing them to knock yeah. it, you know, out. They get, now, they we get screwed s- over or they spend, they spend 30 years in mortgage stresses, yeah. they can never pay it off. Yeah, but yeah. of course, you know, we're not doing that at the moment because mm-hmm. all we're doing is cutting rates, mm-hmm. um, really, in the last 20 years or 15 years. Right. It will adjust, I can tell you that. Yeah. You know, we might have thought we've worked out ways to, you know, influence, new, new ways to influence the system through, you know, unconventional monetary policy and anything, but the system Cause, will... Because that's a good idea. <laughs> the system will adjust and, yeah. you know, it gets back to that conversation about yeah. world debt, household debt. The World Bank put out a report yesterday and, you know, what does this place look like mm. with a 200 basis point increase in interest rates? Mm. What does it look like with a you know, three or four percentage point increase. Surely, in a, surely a deep recession at two hundred basis point increases. Uh, can we I'd, avoid? I'd, it? I'd go beyond that. Would you? I'd go beyond. I'd talk about major social yeah. problem unrest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, just as, uh, this is the thing, and, and look, I don't know the answer because we it's, it's it's not a working experiment. Right, but right. Are lots of little recessions every you know eight to ten years mm-hmm. better? Yeah, yeah, or maybe one that just wipes us out every 30 or 40. Mm. I don't know. We don't. That's know. what worries me people are saying. We did one good recession. I'm like, well, economically, numerically, maybe. But the social unrest, as you said, the dislocation, the job losses, the family issues, like it's not, it's not just, as you've yeah. mentioned a couple of times, it's not just an economic system. It's well, a social um, system. I right? think what happened in Australia is we had one of those wipeout recessions in the early 90s. I mean, right. I don't think anyone should forget that both the early 80s, which is bad, mm-hmm. 
but particularly the early 90s, we, these were mm-hmm. really severe recessions. They were crises. 11% you know? unemployment a lot. Yeah, right? yep, yep. yeah. A recession doesn't have to look like that. In fact, I'd right. argue for all intents and purposes, we've had a couple of recessions. I mean, if you, if you, if you judged or measured it properly, not this stupid, naive... <laughs> Two quarters of negative economic growth in a row. Yeah. We've had probably three recessions. Right. Um, and they've been extraordinarily mild. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument would be, you know, are we are we too fearful? You know, mm-hmm. of this narrative economic stuff. You know, this the the um, the Schiller book. You know, have yeah, we yeah. created a narrative in our society where it's just absolutely the worst possible thing? Partly because of yeah. the experience yeah. of the early nineties. And partly because of what we've seen overseas, and maybe politics a little bit too. There's, oh. No one wants to be the prime minister who, who's in charge when a recession hits. Right? Totally. Yeah. We're going to learn all of that, and mm-hmm. um, you know, this is why the changes and the the, the the problems we've faced now for about ten years uh, since the crisis, and we could even argue a bit longer, and they're probably going to last for another ten years. Mm-hmm. I think, but somewhere between twenty thirty and twenty forty, we'll we'll have a major shift in how we run this place, the economy, everything. Fascinating. I'll have yeah. you back then. We'll talk about it. It's good to do the long-term forecast. Um, <laughs> it takes a while for that to catch up with you. And maybe maybe people have forgotten if you got it wrong. And if you got it right, you can always remind people. Mate, let, let's bring it back as we as we come towards a conclusion. Um, back to the, I suppose, real world, if I can put it that way, at least, at least specifically for people listening. I follow you on Twitter and you wrote last year, you said, if Australia wants to top the world for innovation and productivity, we can start by topping the world for spending on education and skills. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that? Is, is, this, a, is this a UTS industry professor spruiking his own business or is yeah. there is there more to it than that? No, it's pretty much that. <laughs> there is more to it because, you know, I'm not going to do it if I, I don't believe in it. Of course, mate. Of course. Um, but no, definitely from the perspective because, you know, one of the, the key things I'm working on um, at UTS is what, what's called the UTS Futures Academy. Okay. Um, UTS had a you know, – UTS Business School had a – um, a pretty modest executive education capability. Mm-hmm. I mean, New South Wales is the market yeah. leader. Um, and, you know, we've, we've gone to actually what I call second generation, which is not about exec ed as such, which is about training future and current leaders. Mm. It's actually enterprise-wide skilling and reskilling. Okay. And um, one of the, 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 the ideas here is that Industrial Revolution 4.0 is going to is doing and will continue mm. and probably accelerate the impact on the service sector about what happened in manufacturing. That is job losses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of job losses. And what we want to try and do with this is keep as many people in jobs as possible because mm-hmm. the reason there's going to be job losses is partly because machines can do the work um, of people, yep. okay, uh, computers, mm-hmm. um, and partly because the people that are existing in the roles don't have the skills to do the new roles. Right. And it's all about can we retrain them, reskill them. So I think it's a really powerful thing um, that we're doing here. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, actually, you know, look, we're doing it in a university. Um, we're, we're trying to make it a basically a run as a business. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that, you know, you could argue that anything that, is worthwhile should be able to you know wash its own face right right um but look the reality is is that the societies that have in the past and will continue to do well are the ones whose people are uh, the most adept mm-hmm. uh, there's just no two ways about it so yeah manufacturing you know mm-hmm. oh my god automation we're going to lose jo- jobs okay the highest the countries with the highest biggest manufacturing sectors and the most profitable mm. and the most and the most jobs have the highest rates of automation. Oh, they go Germany to, comes to mind. Is that Germany, correct? Right. Japan. Right. Um, and 
in economics, economist terms, there's this thing called, you know, the efficient production frontier, theoretical idea about, you know, employing capital and labour as best you can. And what you want to do is be as close to that as you, as you can be for any given technological um, state of the world. Mm-hmm. And that state of the world now is changing big time. Um, and, you know, we're nowhere near using its full capacity. I mean, no, no one uses their iPhone's capacity. We're near it, <laughs> let, let alone all the stuff that can Well, mate, have. Facebook takes up a bit of capacity, let's be honest. Well, this is one of the arguments American, <laughs> some American economists is that all the technology is just <laughs> distracting people through leisure activities. But anyway, back to the point is the, 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 the skills and education. I think it's the skills as much as anything. Yeah, um, right. So, you know, it's not the old go to uni, do a trade. Yeah. There's something in between called yeah, right. modern skills you know, yeah okay digital skills whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. um but it's that skills piece which is going to is going to determine how close to that frontier you are mm-hmm. um and i just think it's critical i think you know it's so important it can't be left just to the private sector you don't want the government coming in and mucking the industry up right you know but at the same time i think the government needs to be better and you know, the government's pretty good at it obviously and obviously with the university sector and everything and there's mm-hmm. a lot of issues there which i'm not going to go into yes um <laughs> but you know I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. need the best people, and you know, best people don't aren't self trained. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you're also working with the Australian Food and Grocery Council, and I have a have a, a very very long time ago in a former life at, at worked for a couple of food companies as well. So we, there's a there's a crossover there somewhere. Um, but taking the work you're doing with them, taking the work you've just talked about with the education and skilling, when you're talking about that, I was I was immediately reminded of, and you mentioned manufacturing as well. The whole idea that some part of the problem around what tariffs do we want to impose or what industry support do we want to provide for something like the car industry, for example, which is now gone. Um, that was about, well, okay, there is a, there's a, there's a national kind of pride piece. There's a national readiness or do we, do we want to have the skills to make stuff piece? And then there's a piece about those people who are, well, if you worked at a car, at a car factory for 45 years, as, as great as you might be, when you get the resale, you're not going to be able to walk into the web design place next door and start working. Yeah, well, there's something there's something about that that transition as you say that, that helps those people not be so calcified in their roles yeah. or in their in their their tasks. So a big part of the populism now and Trump and everything is <laughs> that we didn't handle that manufacturing transition well. And it wasn't all about right. offshoring. I mean, you know, no matter what people want to, you know, mm-hmm. the the, the the right wingers want to say is it's not just all about offshoring; it's about automation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we didn't help those people enough. Clearly, but also, I mean, I would have thought in cars, for example, the market's not big enough, and the scale of those production facilities is not large enough compared to when you're making cars in Thailand or Argentina yeah. or South Africa for for markets that are 10, 20 times the size of ours. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to try and make cars in Australia or New Zealand or in small markets for small markets. Yeah. You've got to have global scale, do you not? Yeah, and, and we tried that with the exporting. And look, we, right, you, you know, the Australian manufacturers or well, Holden, GM yep. and yep. Ford were part of a global operation. <laughs> so There's that too, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, look, the the, the, the so you, I don't think the scale thing was that important. Okay. Um, in The thing I think was important, and this gets to the protection piece, mm. is did the government intervention in that market push the industry closer to its efficient frontier <laughs> or further away. Right. And this gets to the other point you make about the intervention. The government motivation was about jobs. Yeah, okay. Okay. So basically what they did was they went in there, provided a big subsidy, um, and you know, there was no illusions with GM and Ford what it was for, <laughs> yeah. was to don't shut those plants down. <laughs> yeah. And then guess what? Yeah. Within, by, say, 2012, yeah. Um. The level of automation and technology in the Elizabeth plant or down in Geelong yeah. compared to what was going on in Korea mm. or in Germany was a different world. I, right. They hadn't invested in the most 
leading edge automation and robotics because, you know, the reason they're getting 300 mil each a year was to keep yeah. people in employment. They didn't need to, right? Well, exactly. It was so almost, yeah, that's right. Okay, this was an example of how a government yep. intervention pushed the industry away from the efficient frontier, <laughs> not towards it, yep. and, of course, ultimately doomed it. So right, we don't right, know right, what, right. whether – I actually believe we would – you know, we've, we've still got a car industry. It's just that we design cars for the rest of the world here. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's a lot going on. In terms of other industries – We've got to be seriously looking at this. You've pointed to all the issues there, um, but I'll just raise one critical frame yeah. of reference because I'm a big believer in markets. I'm a big believer in regulation of markets, but of markets generally. Yep. Um, and what's happened in Australia in the last 30 years has delivered us a fantastic economy, but we are in a world of growing economic nationalism mm -hmm. is one. So mm -hmm. you just look at the other advanced economies, Trump, intervention, tariffs, blah, blah, blah. Yep. But then the other piece is you look at our basically our cohort and it's who we trade with in our geography. It's yep. Asia. Yep. And the reality is they are all economic nationalists. They have heavy-duty industry policy and we would be naive not to take that into account. Now, we need to still show leadership and commitment to open mm -hmm. trade and I totally believe that. But at the same time, we also need to look sensibly as a community and as a government at, you know, what are we losing and why? So if we're not careful, we're the patsy who tries to do all the right things and gets kind of screwed around for and, the And non-negotiable. Australians aren't going to cop it. And right. if, if, it, if it happens, then those who allowed it to happen will not be forgiven. <laughs> um, but it's about us. What's in the gun, mate? What, what, what are you most worried about? In that Industry-wise. Yeah, the industries that we, we're likely to lose if we don't do something about Well, it. the thing I'm looking at now is the food manufacturing industry, right. which, you know... Agricultural superpower, major world exporter, mm, feed the world, mm. shrinking food manufacturing. That doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> right. And is it is it a case of potentially like steel making other things? Where we, we dig up the in the mining industry, we dig up the stuff, we send it to someone else to value add. Are we at the risk of doing exactly the same thing know, with food? Totally. Right. Totally. And the the question with that is apart from, you know, all the carbon we chew through, sending stuff off and bringing it back. <laughs> yeah, but right. it's, 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 it's actually a different industry. It's a little mad, you know, it? People can argue about we need cars, it's strategic. Well, yeah, yeah really, is it? Um, steel, mm -hmm. you know, maybe. Food, yes. Yeah. That is the number one thing <laughs> yeah, human beings right. we need. We do that cars. And guess so what? <laughs> from, from learning more about this industry, I've realised is one thing Australians have absolutely no conception of mm. is food insecurity. Right. And if we continue to lose our manufacturing, if our environment continues to change and hurt the global agricultural capacity, mm. sure. then, um, you know, again, 10, 15, 20 years down the track, we could be in a position that we don't, shouldn't necessarily be in and we don't like. Killing the goose that laid the golden egg? Oh, totally. So, you know, if there's ever a case for the strategic industry, um, mm. the food you know, food processing, manufacturing, everything is definitely one of them. But there, there's going to be other industries, tourism, mm. education. Yeah, uh, the two, I, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm Australian treasurer for a day, I'm thinking the things we have that, that are unique, different and demand, you can't replace the natural – or you, can't, you, you, can, you can go to the Grand Canyon instead. But we've got Uluru, we've got the Barrier Reef, we've got the beaches. I mean, the, the, the Kylie Minogue, I quite like the, the UK. Yeah, yeah. There's some sense of like the things that are special, that other people see as special, whether they are or not, we can be a bit cultural cringy about that. But mm. – it's a pretty good country and people are coming here. Yeah. Education similarly, we've got people coming in by the tens of thousands to be educated by Australian universities. Yeah. It just strikes me that those two in particular are two things we should be doing everything we can to support because they are the things that other people can't do anywhere near as well as we can. Exactly. I would argue that they're, they're, they're strategic industries because they're so big. Right, uh, right. And they're also vulnerable. I mean, yeah. you know, if the Chinese government turns hostile, I'm not suggesting they will in yeah. any way, shape yeah. or form because I think they're, you know, by and large, they want to be good 
international citizens and everything. Mm-hmm. But you know, like if things get bad, and mm. no, they could just go, okay, no more visas for tourists to Australia, or no more visas for students to Australia, right? right. Or it might not be China; it might be India or mm-hmm. Indonesia mm-hmm. in thirty years' time. Whatever. These are strategic industries because they're big, but I think they're also strategic because they're concentrated, yeah. as a lot of our trade is. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there's no doubt that things like defence is already strategic. Yeah. You know, coal, mm-hmm. LNG. Um, it's also true that they employ more people or, per unit of output, right? Education and tourism are, are people-heavy, people-centric yeah, industries. Yeah, and they're good industries. You know? yeah. it's, it's, a, it's been a key part of the way Australia makes the world a better place. Australia mm-hmm. is a force for good in the world. There's mm-hmm. no two ways about it, although some people would argue about some of the stuff we do, especially military support for the US. But apart from that, mm-hmm. we are a you know, leader in freedom and democracy and campaigner for openness and, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, we love educating other people's kids and, you know, we want everyone to come and have a holiday here. I mean, we have a major obstacle for mm. people coming here and that's the fact that it's a long way away, um, which is, you know, obviously... we're really close to, to the emerging behemoth of Asia, right? I mean, well, we're, we're miles away right, from Europe close. and the US, but... It's, it takes more time to go from Singapore to Sydney, i.e. the closest major <laughs> city in Asia, than it does to go from London to New York. So All right, fair. We're not... We're not you know, this All is I mean the, is we're, we're closer to Asia than, than we are to, to oh, yeah. Europe and, and the US, and right? And that's, 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 that's been an absolute game changer. Right, right. What is it they're saying from the tyranny of distance to the power of proximity? <laughs> but um, the uh, the other thing that we cannot underestimate about how come we get these people here is because mm-hmm. we're a safe, ordered, respectful society, you know? I mean, we have the odd problem, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. What about the reaction when those Indian students ran into trouble or whatever it was yeah, five right, years ago? Exactly. The Indian yeah. government reacted because they don't expect that from Australia. Yeah, yeah. And we really need to be careful with that. Not that I think there's any issues, but mm. that's a really... It's the sort of thing that... We are be. a civilised place. Yeah. The, 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 the you know, law and order is important, et cetera, et cetera. So don't underestimate how important that is. Australia's a force for good in the world. I like that. I'm going to uh, get you to finish off, Warren, with, with a, bit of a, a bit of a game, if you'll indulge me. We're going to play buy, hold or sell. So we're gonna, we, we normally talk stocks and investing on the podcast. So, you know, buy, holding and selling stocks is kind of our core business. So I'm going to hit you with a topic, an idea or a suggestion. And get you to tell me whether it's a buy, hold, or sell as an idea, and maybe a, a couple of couple of words as to why. So, buy, hold, or sell an Australian recession by twenty twenty three. Hold, hold. Why? Look, we're browning. We're as I said, we're vulnerable, mm-hmm. and you, there's a, there's not there's a lot of things that could go wrong, <laughs> and nothing to do with Australia. Um, and if we do get a shock, we're right on. You know that we haven't got a lot of growth buffer. So, in a technical recession, like I said, I mean it's a rubbish sort of. Yeah, we'll probably have a technical recession where the unemployment rate doesn't go up. Right, right. You know, right. And there'll be recession on the headlines <laughs> and unemployment's falling. That'll really get them, won't Unless it? confidence actually, anyway, takes it. We'll get move on. Interest rates increasing next year, buy, hold, or sell? Uh, 2021, uh, I'm talking about here. Oh, 2021? Next year, yes. Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll buy that. Not, not buy, okay. I've actually got it in my forecast. For? Next year. For when? Ah. Oh, some point. Come on. <laughs> not, not February. <laughs> um, I don't want to be too long, Vol. Um, let's talk about <laughs> May or back, I, all I'm trying to send a signal yep. there is to say rates in Australia are, are a long way below neutral and going up. And if you don't think they're going to be doing something in the next six months, then they should be going up. Very good. But I saw the whole Australian housing at the current prices. Um, what on a five-year view? Uh, no, you're, you're always buying Australian housing. I mean, look, we've got to, we've got to lay down five percent in the next six months, uh, and then even if it doesn't do anything for the next ten years, you still made a bit of money. So buy. You always buy Australian housing. Very good. But I saw hold a peaceful end to the trade war between the Yanks and the Chinese. Uh, hold. It's not clear to me. 
it's it's a tough one. What are your Trump, what are your Trump's a little more sophisticated than what people think. Mm. He carries on like a buffoon, but he's <laughs> he, he is quite smart, and the people around him are. I mean, the bloody nose he's just given around is quite incredible. They sort of you know fight a couple of crappy mm-hmm. rockets back and everything settled down and mm-hmm. they, they achieved what they wanted and took a major player out of Iran and mm-hmm. haven't caused a major dislocation as we've seen. And I think Trump's playing this. So, look, I, th- I think it's 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 really um, – that's going to be a reflection of just how the whole US-China thing goes in the, and in the, in the next year or two I think it should be pretty stable. And you're a fantastic follow on social media. So if anyone out there uh, wants to follow someone great on, on social media, follow Warren Hogan. But Warren, after a particular uh, abusive tweet I saw you receive late last year, buy, sell, or hold social media? <laughs> no, I'm still a buyer because I think one of the big things that technology is going to do to this world, which not many people are talking about now, is um, you know it's going to bring more power to the people and, and concepts of direct democracy and all this sort of thing. And, and the thing is we've got to learn how to manage that and all the problems of things that we're seeing with social media, particularly, you know, dealing with, you know, nastiness <laughs> is something we've got to learn how to deal with, not just as individuals, but as a society. So I think we've got to keep, yeah, we, we, you're not going to stop it. So I'm a, I'm a buyer, I'll persist. Very good. Um, until I don't. <laughs> <laughs> good to hear. And if you want to follow Warren's underscore Warren Hogan on Twitter, it's a very good follow. Do yourself a favour and follow Warren. Warren, thank you very much for taking the time to join us at Motley Fool Money. I, I finish feeling much more educated. I certainly know a little bit more about what to expect and what you're thinking about with the economy. And mate, thank you for uh, making things a little bit clearer for us. Fair, fantastic, be Scott, and all the best to all your listeners. Thank you very much. That does wrap us up for Motley Fool Money. Before we go, don't forget you can subscribe, and we think you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, leave us some stars, throw us a review, tell your friends. More people need to hear the goodness of the likes of Warren Hogan and others on this particular podcast. And don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox. Go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.